Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Amy Blurt, and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime lecture by Dr. Arturo Galancino, who's the curator at the Royal Academy of Arts. Arturo joined the Royal Academy in 2013, and before that studied in Milan and Turin, researching history of criticism and North Italian Renaissance art. Arturo previously had curatorial positions in the Louvre, where he worked on the 2008 exhibition Mantegna. In 2010, he worked on the exhibition Titian, Tintoretto and Veronese at the National Gallery, followed by an exhibition on Leonardo in 2011. Before curating Giovanni Battista Moroni, Arturo was also the curator of our Spring Sackler exhibition, Renaissance Impressions. And looking ahead to 2015, Arturo will be the co-curator of Rubens and his legacy. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Arturo Galanzino. Thank you, Amy, and thank you everybody for being here today. If you are here, I think you know who was more or less Giovanni Battista Moroni, great Lombard painter, born in the 20th of 16th century and died at the end of the century, about 1579-1580. He spent his life always close to the native town of Albino, between Albino and Bergamo, actually, with, with very few international experience. So in a certain way, we can say that he was a provincial painter, but if you had a look to the exhibition, you will tell me that his art is not provincial at all. But probably you don't know is that probably Moroni was one of the most British of the Renaissance Italian painters. Moroni was collected during the 19th century here in Great Britain, and in a certain way is actually London responsible for his rediscovery. A rediscovery happened at the end of the century, at the end of the 19th century, in the Victorian time, thanks to the acquisition of the National Gallery. If you go there, you will see about 10 Moroni, and three are here in the Royal Academy for our show. But at, actually, at the end of the 19th century, Moroni was a, a really fashionable name. There was a kind of Moroni fever in London at the time. I hope it will happen again. <laughs> not only in terms of uh, collecting, of course, not only the public collection, but also the private collection were buying a lot of Moroni. But if you read some uh, novels, for example, from Victorian novels, Harry James, for example, uh, you will find the name of Moroni quoted many times, described on the walls of the beautiful rooms in their, of their aristocracy of, or bourgeoisie. There is one novel, for example, very interesting. It's a short tale called The Liar. It's a story of uh, a painter, an artist, uh, in love with a girl, and as usual, the girl belongs to somebody else. There is an antagonist. This antagonist is a colonel, and then, of course, the painter thinks that this guy is very bad. So he invented a trick to show to this lady that her husband was not good at all. And so he wants to paint a portrait of this guy for showing the real soul of this person, so the bad soul of this person. And he said, I would like to be like Moroni, who was able to display the inner life, the real life, the, in the interior life of their sitter. So it's very nice to see how the Victorian writers, in a certain way, look at Moroni as a kind of alter ego, and of course, appreciated his incredible realism. 
let's start to do this presentation of the exhibition. I hope that some of you have already had a tour of upstairs. The exhibition is a, a chronological one, divided in 16. So you will have the opportunity of following all the career of Moroni, I think with a certain coherence, thematical coherence. The first room is a, yeah, we call it the laboratory room actually, because it's the room where we will find uh, all the ingredients uh, which created the recipe Moroni. So we will show the relations between his master, Alessandro Bombicino, called Il Moretto, and the pupil, Giovanni Battista Moroni. Moretto was one of the greatest painters of the Lombard Cinquecento. He was working in Brescia, not far from where Moroni was born. And actually, Moroni was brought by his father to Brescia to, be, to train with this great, great master. So already in this very important loan, this big altarpiece, another piece painted in Bergamo, so not far from where Moroni was born by Moretto, you can find many elements that you will find again and again in the output of the master. For example, this interest for the beauty of the texture, this very striking and brilliant color, of course, issued by the, also the mannerism taste, a certain realism in the expression of the saints, not so much idealized, and also, for instance, in this beautiful detail of this basket of fruit, which is really a forerunner of the independent genre, is really a forerunner of the Caravaggio basket of fruit. And then, of course, you can see also this beautiful architectural setting with these uh, ruins, these bridged columns. Uh, the father of Moroni was a stonemason, and so probably this kind of setting had a certain influence on his output. As you can see, looking at the painting by Moroni on the, on the bottom of the page, you see the same architectural setting with this bridged column, this majestic architecture and so on. On the top you find a late example of the portraiture by Moretto. And we wanted to put close the two, these two paintings in the exhibition to show how Moroni was taking from the representation of expression done by the master. So we tried to display this painting, which is a very rare one, not very well known. I think it's the first time it's an exhibition ever. Surely the first time he left the small village where he is conserved. And probably we, we realized that we discovered a very early Moroni. Because you will see in the exhibition that they are so close that they really they, they look the same, the same master. But it's interesting to see really the humus where Moroni came from. The second room will be devoted to uh, the theme of the Counter-Reformation. Moroni had a kind of double life. He was a very modern and revolutionary portrait painter. But he was also especially when he painted in the religious themes, was also a counter-reformation painter. The only international experience he had in his life was in Trento, not far away, but in another state, of course. And this happened during the Council of Trento, so the most important moment for reshaping the Catholic world at the time. So very young Moroni was there between 1548 and the beginning of the 50s, Actually, we can say that all his work is, uh, at least a part of his work, is imbued by the issues of the Counter-Reformation. In Trento, Moroni surely met many important people. It was really the most important place in, at the time. Everybody was there, not only religious persons, but also po politicians, kings, and everybody. So he met, it was an important moment for finding patrons, 
probably he was able to go to Bergamo afterward, thanks to some, some, uh, some people, some, somebody met there. And then, of course, he was also able to meet new theory, new research in the new rules of faith and devotion. Uh, this painting embodies very well this, because this painting is a devotional uh, small altarpiece you will find in the exhibition. It's, it's not a public one, it's a devotional, it's a private devotional altarpiece. It represents really a typical image of the counter-reformation. As you can see, it represents a devout praying with his gaze lost. And in front of him, on the other side of this breached wall, there is a, v, there is a, a scene of baptism. In 1548, exactly when Moroni was in, uh, in Trento, Sant'Ignacio de Loyola, the famous Jesuit uh, preacher, one of the most important uh, theoricians of the Counter-Reformation, published a book called The Spiritual Exercise. One of these exercises was called The Mental Prayer, l'orazione mentale. This uh, exercise, we can describe this exercise like that. The devout should focus his attention to a a specific moment of the sacred stories and try to have this episode in front of his eye, to visualize it more and more. At the end, it will happen a kind of vision in front of his eyes and the sacred story should be more real than the reality itself. And that is actually what Moroni is doing here. You see a devout praying on this side of the wall. On the other wall, we have, we have his vision. As you can see, Moroni put this vision in a very realistic landscape, a Lombard one, we should say. Of course, he used again, there is this sense of the using architecture in an expressive way. As you can see, this wall divides the reality and the even more real reality of the sacred story. Another interesting comparison, where unfortunately Moroni doesn't win this time, is this comparison between Lorenzo Lotto Altarpiece of the Trinity, painted about 1519, and the Trinity painted by Moroni for the same confraternity about 30 years later. We wanted to put this comparison because I think it's really, uh, really clear what does it mean uh, a shift, a passage in the representation of sacred image. Moroni here wants to modernize in a certain way the painting by Lotto, two generations before. What's happened? So it's clear that Moroni couldn't paint as Lotto did 30 years before. Something happened, the Council of Trento, the Council of Reformation. Moroni is a counter-reformation painter. It was no time for representing the Trinity in this very poetical way, as Lotto does, with this beautiful landscape, with this fantastic color. Of course, the, the photo is not good, but go upstairs and you will see these beautiful clouds full of pink. It's really a heavily vision, um, full of, I told you, of sensibility of, of poetry. Moroni, as a counter-reformation painter, must be clear, didactic. Everybody should understand what he was saying. So that's the reason why the ghostly presence of the Godfather in the Lotto altarpiece, in Moroni's one, became a massive presence, quite solid, of a Godfather it looks more like a bouncer of an athlete <laughs> rather than, rather than uh, this ghostly presence of Lotto painting with the, fold, the, the sleeve folded. You see how this is massive. And Moroni, of course, is not interested in this uh, rendering of the atmosphere, of the, this, this pink leaky colors, and so on. So this is, is a very important 
comparison to see how a counter-reformation painter must work at the time. Of course, according to our taste today, is more modern Lotto than Moroni. But as I told you, that was the fashion of this moment. Another interesting typology of portraits that you will find in the second room is the so-called exemplar portraiture, model portraiture, ritratti esemplari. Actually, this kind of portraits are linked again to the culture of the Counter-Reformation. And uh, this is, is a very good example because in this kind of portraiture, this kind of portraits are not done for our enjoyment, are, done, are not done for our pleasure, and not even for the vanity of the sitters. These kind of portraits are done because the sitter deserved to be painted, because in their life they did something special, some deeds, extraordinary, morally exemplar. What this lady did is written in this beautiful inscription, in Latin, of course. Actually, she founded a monastery and a church of Sant'Anna in Albino. So for this reason, for her devotion, she deserved to be painted. And as you can see, this, this portrait is not done for, as I told you, for the public enjoyment. The lady, she's not looking in the direction of the beholder, as all the other portraits will do, you will see. But she's looking elsewhere. She's probably praying, she's probably doing this exercise, something similar of the exercise that we have seen before, of the spiritual, of the, of the, of the spiritual prayer, of the mental prayer. So she's looking in other direction. And then, furthermore, you can see here how Moroni, in his uh, early activity, was influenced by northern examples, especially for his realism. You see how he's representing uh, the face of this old lady. We know that she will die a few months after, uh, afterwards. Uh, in a real, uh, completely realistic way, with the goiter, with all her wrinkles, Moroni is not embellishing, especially in this kind of portraiture. He's always a realist, but especially in this kind of moral portraiture, he's not embellishing at all. Then after having an overview of all the elements of the first years, Moroni activity as a painter, we can start enjoying more his art. So the third room is dedicated to the aristocratic portraiture, and actually is a room uh, explaining Moroni's output during the 50s in Bergamo. As I told you, after Trento, Moroni couldn't go back to Brescia, couldn't be again the pupil of Moretto, of course. He was a professional. So he decided to move to, to Bergamo, not so far from he was where, where he was born, and to be. And he, and he will become the major portraits of all the Bergamo aristocracy. So in this room you will see a lot of elegant and beautiful full-length portraits, like this one, for example, the so-called man with a wounded foot, the so-called man in pink. <laughs> you understand why? <laughs> and the portrait of Pietro Secco Suardo. This, this kind of format was the, the most prestigious one. And actually, probably Moroni, uh, had in front of his eyes some example when he was in Trento. Actually, especially northern painters like Antonis Moore, for example, uh, working for the Osborg, of the same Titian working for the Osborg court as well, uh, they were elaborating a new model for official portraiture, for the state portraiture. And Moroni, for the Bergamo aristocracy, often chose this highly official, very prestigious uh, kind of portraiture. In this room you will find 
is a triumph of fashion, of texture, of silk, uh, velvet, uh, all sort of fashionable object you can imagine. Uh, for example, this, this painting is a very good example of this richness, how Moroni represented this aristocracy. This man in pink, probably the pink was chosen, chosen because of his heraldic meaning. We know that the coat of arm of this guy was a, color, a coral branch, so probably this is the reason why he wanted to, to use this quite peculiar color, a little bit showing off his wealthy, his elegance. So in this room, you, really, you will have a representation of a certain society, of the Bergam of the 50s. You will find in many of these, uh, of these portraits some mottos, for example, in Spanish. You can see at the bottom of the painting, on, the, on your left, you see a Spanish motto, Mas el gaguero que el primero, it means better the latter than the former. Some mottos are mysterious, like this one. Some, actually, there is a meaning, but it's too long to explain. Some others are relating. So you see a, a society who wants to be represented in a very elegant way, in a very rich way, also showing off their culture. In terms of fashion, these two ladies are very beautiful examples of how Moroni is really is a tailor painter in this, in this, in this sense. So it's, that's a coincidence that he will paint the tailor afterwards. But here is really interested in representing all the beauty of this uh, uh, fashionable garment, like this uh, portrait of Isotta Brembati, where you can see this beautiful green and gold uh, damask velvet with this. Uh, she is wearing a lot of jewels of all sorts of pearl, diamonds. And she wears a sable, you see, with a muzzle done with gold. and other kind of precious stones. Also, the other lady, Lucia Albani, she's very fashionable. She's wearing, of course, a more sober, in a certain way, uh, dress, elegant dress, done with silk, red, and orange. What is interesting, and these two ladies were the two leading figures of the intellectual life in Bergamo at the time. They were two poets, Isotta Brembali and Lucia Albani. They were celebrated, uh, for example, by great uh, um, humanist like Torquato Tasso, as a very uh, good poet, able in uh, composing verse in Spanish, in Latin, and in Volgare, in Italian. So you, you saw before a Spanish motto. Now we, we are talking about this fashion of composing verse in, in Spanish. So you, find that you will find in the room a lot of Spanish elements. I will tell you why. About Spanish motto, for example, look at this one on the column. I am here and uh, without fear, not even the fear of death. Very brave statement for this guy. He's looking at us in a very braggart way. Actually, this guy was not Italian, was a Spaniard, was Diego de la Cueva, the Duke of Albuquerque. This guy was at the time the vice king of Navarra, and in a few years he will be the governor of Milan. Milan, at the time, of course, was under the Spanish Empire. So you see how many Spanish elements. So that, that was, has to be explained looking at the political situation of the time. Bergamo was under the power. Of course, this, this plan is not exactly in the show, but it's at the, at the beginning. The, the, the Venice was under the control of the Republic of Venice, while, but it was 
as you can see, very close to the border with the Duke of Milan, which was at the time under the power of the Spanish Empire. All the Italy was under the power of the Spanish Empire because all these states were actually uh, under the, this big international power. After the Treaty of Cato Cambresi, uh, actually Italy became, this treaty stopped the, the war between France and Spain, Italy really became a kind of Spanish uh, land. So actually the only resistance was Venice, and Bergamo, as you can see, was on the border. So what we can see in this section of the exhibition is an aristocracy which was in great part philo-Spanish. So many of these persons wanted to be part of this powerful empire instead of being under Venice. And you can see how Moroni was painting this aristocracy, and even more, he was painting a high functioner, a very important functioner of the Spanish Empire. So you can see how Moroni was really part of this process. I didn't tell you that these two are two couples. Faustino Vogadro was the husband of Lucia Albani, while Isotta Brembati was the wife of Gian Girolamo Grumelli. So actually, we will have these two couples, one in front of the other in the exhibition. As I told you, the two ladies were rivals because they were two poets working in the same in the same moment, in the same town. They were, of course, also rival in elegance, but there was much more. Actually, as I told you, a part of the aristocracy were philo-Spanish. In this case, we have the Brembati as the leading philo-Spanish family, while the Albani were the, philo, the leading family of the philo-Venetian party. So between these two families, there was a long-lasting feud, and this feud ended in a very bloody way. On the day of Easter of 1563, somebody of the Brembati family was killed by a member of the Albani family. And this was intolerable, of course. Venice couldn't accept anymore this kind of behavior. And so, starting a kind of punishment to the city of Bergamo. Expropriation, new walls built, palace destroyed, many people were put in jail, many exiled. So this date, 1563, is an important moment for our painter because, of course, all this wealthy moment of uh, art and freedom, poetry, luxury, fashion, suddenly stopped. And Moroni, of course, had to move because he didn't have this rich patronage anymore. So he decided to go back to his native town, to Albino, a few miles away. And in Albino, he will really start his revolution so that's the reason why in this room, in the fourth room of the exhibition, you will find a lot of half-bust portraits. It doesn't mean that Moroni only painted half-bust portraits, of course, but he wanted to, to focus on this format to show how Moroni was trying to find new ways, more affordable formats of portraiture. So you will find in that room a lot of middle-class, small religious. So Moroni changed in a certain way his patrons. In this case, in this case we are before the feud, but we, we, we see how already Moroni had also other kind of clients. Middle class, this guy, by the way, this is a new discovery in the exhibition, the red with the red beard, was something that we found completely out of the blue on the market and we attributed to Moroni. A very beautiful one, by the way. Or a small, a small clergyman like this 
Basilio, portrait of Basilio Zanchi, who, by the way, was an important figure in the cultural life of Bergamo. He was appointed curator of the Vatican Library in Rome, so it was really important. And also, he spent the rest of his life in prison because he was suspected of being partisan of the Lutheran, of the Protestant heresy. But you see how, in this kind of portraits, Moroni is doing something completely different. He's still interested in the reality, but the reality it's not, it's not anymore the exterior reality. It's trying to go inside the sitters and trying to study the psychology. Of course, this word didn't really exist at the time, but it's what Moroni is trying to give us, to give us the inner life of their sitter. And he's using an incredibly, completely unusual realism. As you can see, he's not embellishing their sitter, and he's, but he's trying to give the real feature of the sitter and also something more, their inner life. And he's doing that not only with the lower classes, also with the upper classes. These two beautiful portraits of these two noble ladies, you can see that are, of course, a showing off of beauty, of elegance. Look, for example, these incredible details, where really we can see how Moroni is a great fashion painter. But of course, Moroni is more also in this kind of portrait, is more interested in giving the sense of the depth of their soul. Look, for example, this witty expression, almost intimidating, of the girl dressing pink at the top of the page. It's really something quite unique. Again, it's not idealizing, it's not trying to embellish their sitter, but it's trying to give us their expression, their feelings, their sentiments. Another interesting an interesting portrait of this time is this portrait of Antonio Navagero, which is a good example because Navagero was, a, again, a highly functioner of the Venetian state in this time. In this case, he was the podesta, so the kind of major of Bergamo. But you see how there is nothing official in this portrait. It's very friendly, very accessible. Probably he was a friend of Moroni. We will see at the end of the career of Moroni that all these sitters were friends of his. And you see, actually, how the canon of the representation of a functioner is completely changed. There is a nice tale that we can find in the sources, in the 17th century sources. We don't know if it's completely true, but it's quite symptomatic. It's a tale about um, a functioner of the Venetian state working in Bergamo, so somebody like our friend Navagero, who wanted to have a portrait. And so, he went back to his native town, Venice, to find a good portrait. It's the best one at the time he was a certain Titian. And so he went and asked to Titian to have a portrait painted. And what Titian said is, was that he had to go back to Bergamo. Why did you come to, to Venice? In Bergamo, you have Moroni, who is able to paint the portraits natural. So until the 17th century, since the 17th century until nowadays almost, this, this uh, story, this anecdote, was interpreted in a positive way. But probably there is some ambiguity. Probably Titian recognized the realism of Moroni. But realism, in this time, was not a value at all. And probably was only suggesting to this guy to go back to Bergamo because he was not high enough to be painted by Titian, who was the painter of the emperor, the pope, and all the top of the world. So again, we see how the values used by Moroni are completely anachronistic, are completely modern, are completely revolutionary. He was a, a man a little bit, surely ahead 
of his time, but in a certain way also outside his time, a little bit lost in the culture of his time. And so that's the reason why his clientele, especially at the end of his life, was more a friendly clientele of people who trusted him, uh, of friends, who were, and people interested in having a realist image of themselves, something completely private, not something to display in a public space. A part of his activity at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s was also the religious painting, of course. As I told you, we, we know Moroni especially for his portrait, but he was also a religious painter. And actually, after the, the, the happy years in Bergamo, working for the aristocracy, religious altarpieces became Moroni's first task. It was the way he could survive, actually, working for the refurbishment of all the churches around Bergamo, the refurbishment done for the visit, the pastoral visit of San Carlo Borromeo, San Charles Borromeo, another very important figure of the Counter-Reformation, and the visit uh, would have happened in 1575. So before 1575, all the churches should have been refurbished following the new rules, the new principles of the Counter-Reformation. So Moroni is a, the protagonist of this refurbishment, one of the great protagonists of this refurbishment. And he's painting a lot of big altarpieces. This is one of them. Uh, very interesting because, as you can see, a very beautiful, colorful uh, group, group of uh, characters. In this case, is the Last Supper. And you see how Moroni is again painting following these new rules, new theory of the time. Especially here, we see how in this very classical scene of La Supper, behind the La Supper, there is a standing figure. Actually, it's the only figure that is puzzling. It's a little bit strange to see this man. And you can see he's looking in our direction. He's trying to involve the sitter in the scene. After some research, the critics discovered that this is probably the portrait of Lattanzio d'Alaglio, who was the chief of the confraternity of the Sacro Sacramento, and the patron who commissioned the painting to Moroni. And by the way, he was also the priest of the parish church where this painting is still hang. All the altarpieces that you will see in the show are still in loco, which is quite nice because you will see something that never moved their original setting. So what's going on here? This man, Lattanzio, the priest, is standing inside the Last Supper. He's inside the scene and he's trying to involve the beholder inside the painting. We are probably, again, in front of something that similar to the orazione mentale that we have seen at the beginning, where there was this man in front of his vision. Here we have Latanzio d'Alaglio, which is inside the vision itself, and he's tried this time to involve the sitter, of course, in this very sacred moment of the religious history. Now we go to the last room that we call the beginnings of the modern portraiture which is a strong statement, but I'm quite happy about this title because I think, as I told you, that really Moroni was an anachronistic artist, completely ahead, out of his time. And so in a certain way, he's really the forerunner of all sorts of modern portraiture, for example, the 19th century one, but also the 17th century. He's also the forerunner of, of some 17th century modern painters like Caravaggio, for example, or Velázquez. The only historically correct comparison is, of course, with Caravaggio. Caravaggio was born more or less when Moroni was, was dying, a few years before, and grown up in Lombardy, exactly in the region where Moroni was working. And surely he had, in front of his eyes, when he was a child, when he was a teenager, a lot of paintings by Moroni, and probably the realism of Caravaggio, the re probably the most important revolution of all Western 
art had a source in Moroni's more humble realism. There is a very beautiful sentence wrote by Roberto Longhi, one of the probably the greatest Italian art historian of the 20th century, who was, by the way, the great rediscoverer of Caravaggio and of Moroni, of course, as well. And he wrote, it was not a coincidence that Moroni was able to go from Bergamo to Rome with in his pocket the manifest of the realistic revolution already written. So it was thanks to Moroni if Caravaggio could start this revolution. The centerpiece of the room is, of course, the iconic portrait of a tailor, one of the icon, uh, surely the most famous painting by Moroni, one of the icon of the National Gallery. Why this portrait is so special? Of course, because it's representing a tailor. It's representing somebody working with his hands. Things that, at the time, is almost inconceivable. If we see that, if we have a look to the contemporary sources, we can understand why. Pietro Retino, for example, the famous intellectual art critic also, if you want, at the time, was complaining in one of his letters that in this moment he was living a time of decadence where the butcher and the tailor had portraits of themselves. And in their portraits, they were acting like commander-in-chief, like Roman emperor, and like uh, very important figures. So it makes sense. Somebody wealthy but not noble wanna be, you know, show, show himself using the canons, the rules of the representation of the upper classes. Moroni is doing exactly the opposite. He's doing exactly the other way around. He's giving us a real image of a wealthy bourgeois, because, of course, he's somebody who can pay a portrait, he's somebody very well dressed, but he wants to be represented as he was, pride of his trade, with his big scissor in the hand, and actually depicted when he was cutting a precious piece of black cloth, a black velvet. And you see how the, the scene is real, because Moroni also put some white line of white chalk, you see, actually to mark where the tailor had to cut. So it's really a scene of a tailor's workshop. And then, of course, there is this extraordinary intimacy between the painter and the sitter, you see? Also this gaze, a little bit shy, a little bit surprised of this man. I think, again, he was a friend of Moroni, as all the sitters of his late period. I can focus to show you this white chalk. It has been uh, discussed if he was really a tailor, but I think he was, not only for the detail I'll just show you, but also if we go around and checking some sources like this book of Taylor, a book full of models, and we have, it's a Spanish book, more or less contemporary, and we have an image of a tailor at work. You see in this print, the tailor was dressed more or less like our tailor. So it means that this very elegant costume, this very elegant garment, was not inappropriate to the status of a tailor, which, by the way, was one of the highest status at the time of the bourgeois classes. In Milan, uh, the do documents of the archives show us how some tailors at the time were really, really rich. Some of them had palaces, properties, a lot of servants, um, and also art collections. So a, a tailor at the time could be very, very rich. This one was probably a provincial tailor, probably in Albino, a friend of, of Moroni. But what the title that we gave, why this uh, modern portraiture? Because I think that this image of this man, somebody depicted as a gentleman working, 
is really something that is a forerunner of, as I told you, some 19th century revolutionary artists like Degas and his repasseuse, you know, all the series of young girls working, ironing, and something like that, surprised during their work. We are really, they are really, in a certain sense, great, great nephews of, uh, of Moroni. As I told you, Moroni knew all these people painted in Albino, and thanks to this special environment, was able to create his own revolution. So for example, these two persons, the Count and the Countess Spini, were close friends of Moroni. We know he was one of the wise men of the administration of Albino, and he was collaborating with, with the other wise men. One of them was Bernardo Spini, this man in black. And they, we know that Moroni and Bernardo supervised together the construction of a school in Albino. So actually, again, we see Moroni representing a big family. In this room, you, you can have a big kind of family portraits of all this small village. So we also have to look at this work as great artwork, as I told you, very modern, but also with a certain anthropological sense, anthropological gaze. You see, again, how here is using the state official format of the full length, so the most prestigious. Of course, they are two aristocrats, so they deserve this important if they want, they deserve this important format. But you see how are completely different from the Bergamasca aristo aristocracy we have seen before. Again, they are accessible, there is more realism in the expression. They are completely non-official portraits. Another incredible protagonist of this room is the portrait of one of his uh, most important patrons, Gian Gerova Albani is, by the way, the father of the lady in red, the poet that we have seen in room three. Gian Geroma was exiled after the feud, after the murder in the cathedral. And he had to live in exile for a few years in one of the islands in the Adriatic belonging to Venice. This is probably the portrait of his coming back. He's representing himself, dressed with uh, all his uniform of collaterale generale, the highest charge that a non-Venetian could have at the time. He was a kind of supreme commander of the army, something like that. And you see how Moroni is really giving us this erratic image of this old man, quite angry. He's really a coming back. There is a certain kind of image of a godfather of the late Renaissance, as you can see. He's trying really to give all the tension, the inner tension of this man. And for example, if we focus on this beautiful detail, we can see that the hands are, in a certain way, more expressive than the heads itself of the sitter. A head where Moroni paints also a bump. So again, he's not idealizing. He's giving the real image of the man. And this man reminds me, especially with this tension, with this inner tension, some example, again, of 19th century portraits, like this Monsieur Bertin by Ingres, the image of uh, the new bourgeoisie who was devouring the world at the time of anger. And so there is, as I told you again, Moroni as a forerunner, is a forerunner of revolutionary style. And we'd like to close here with this beautiful painting, uh, very intimate, really, very intense. It's again the portrait of somebody Moroni knew very well, Pietro Spini, a humanist, an intellectual, living between Bergamo and Albino. You see, again, we have this gray setting, a really modern setting, you know, because it was, giving very, it was giving more strength to the expression, to the face, to the 
uh, tridimensionality of the sitters and is of course the setting a forerunner of the great setting of Caravaggio. You see how we have an image, like if Moroni entering the room of this guy well, when he was reading, it's surprising him. So he's looking a little bit shocked and it's like we surprise him in involving very, de very deep and profound meditation. It's an image of immediacy but also an image of sadness, of death. And again, we have something that is miles, miles, miles away of his time, miles ahead of his time. Something reminds again us the image of Rembrandt, for example, or something like that. So I think that this room is very important because it's the end of a journey that we had through the career of Moroni. It's really is giving us the image of this man who was in his very, in its very, very limited work was able to create an incredible revolution. Thank you, Arturo. Um, we do have time for some questions. I was just going to start us off. Um, in, in many of his portraits, all the sitters that he knew were of varying ranks, and many of them of very high society. What type of man was Moroni to attract those sort of friends? What, do we know anything about his character? We don't know a lot about his life, but we have a lot of information at the same time was surely a simple man, as I told you, really involved, especially the late part of his life, in the life of this small village, so involved in all the administration. He's, um, he, doesn't, he didn't have a workshop. He was working by himself. So we have the idea of a kind of solitary man in a certain way. But as I told you, also involved with high aristocracies, but at the same time also representing middle classes. So he's a very interesting figure of... Um, of painter, of artist, who of course was uh, happy to represent the aristocrat and the lower classes at the same time. And so he's, I think, again, it's a very modern mentality that this, this man had. If we see in the last room, the, a wall especially, we see all these old people uh, with this gray wall behind, seated on the same chair, holding the same books. So it's really. I did this comparison many times. It was really like the photographer of this small village, where everybody was going there and having a portrait painted in this way, using some elements, some props, uh, exactly like uh, the photographer did 100 years ago. Thank you. Anyone got any questions? Thank you. Um, you had mentioned at the um, beginning that he was a pupil of Moretto, and therefore... Um, with Moretto still alive, didn't go back to Brescia to perhaps yeah. avoid the competition there. Um, I'd love to know if um, anything is known about any potential other artists working in Bergamo who might have been colleagues, competition, or was Bergamo just such a small town that's a sort of one artist town at the time? But in a certain way, it was one artist town at the time. Yes, it was. We have uh, some uh, painters, contemporary, but really completely almost unknown and not very qualitative. In a certain way, Moroni really was really the best artist in, in town, but really the best one. <laughs> it was not the second one, maybe. Yeah, yeah so in a certain sense, you're right. Yeah. And uh, why he didn't go back, probably he was aware of his talent. And probably he found in Bergamo also a good environment to start and being the first one. In Brescia, it wouldn't be possible. Of course, there was already a, 
big rivalry. And then probably it was thanks to somebody met in Trento, probably the same Gian Girolamo, the Albani, the, the, the man that we have seen, probably this was. In a certain way, this figure, uh, we find this figure always in the life of Moroni. So this was probably the guy who brought Moroni, Moroni in Bergamo after Trento, and he's surely the guy who brought Moroni back in Bergamo at the end, of, in the second part, uh, especially after his coming back, after the 70. So at the end of the life of Moroni, we have Moroni divided in between Bergamo and Milan. So he had, again, a kind of patronage in Bergamo. Any more questions? Yeah, there's just one there. Are there any portraits or self-portraits of Moroni? Because I'd love to know what he looks like. Unfortunately not. We have many suggestions. We had in the past many suggestions, but unfortunately all fake. Also the guy that we have seen here for a long time, I mean in the 19th century, was considered to be the, a self-portrait of Moroni. But of course, we know who he was. Then it's not realistic to have a self-portrait of, of a painter in a confraternity painting. No. No, unfortunately we don't have it. No, not a real one. There was another question just yeah. The painting chosen for the advert. Yeah. Um, from my point of view, it seen, I haven't seen the original yet. It seems to be out of proportion. Mm -hmm. um, the foreshortening and the arms, etc. Mm -hmm. Why was that chosen? I think if you think that it, well, we don't have it yet, yeah. but it's similar to this one. It's similar to that one a little bit, yes. Uh, out of proportion. What do you mean that, uh, do you think that is, uh, yeah, I think it was painting, yes, actually, probably our, the proportion we have in mind today are, were not as similar at the time. Of course, I think that the people were smaller, probably thinner, and I see what you mean, yes, it's not, you're not the first one to, to tell me this kind of uh, objection. But to be honest, I, I, I never noticed, I, I, I see that they are not uh, beauty as, uh, Vogue models, I, I, I can see why. But I don't, I don't see really this disproportion. Sometimes the, the head are quite big. Probably there is also more attention to this part of the body. Of course, the, for Moroni, the most important. But we see how Moroni was also very, very careful in painting the rest of the portrait. He was alone, he didn't have any workshop. And the costumes, many times, is as much important as the, as the, as the head, especially for the, these high statues. Uh, sitter. Uh, it's probably also re the reason how these people are, are um, you know, they use this very unconventional position with these arms like that. So probably this position g gives us a kind of weird uh, proportion in the, in, the, in the image. But go and have a look and maybe you will change, I hope you will change your mind. <laughs> Were there any more questions? I'm thinking of a portrait by Moroni of a child, mm. and which I like very much, and I don't know if it's in being shown here now. Did he do other portraits of children? No, this is the only uh, really young, young baby that we have uh, by Moroni. Through some history of collecting and also some colors, we know that uh, maybe this, uh, this girl belonged to the Redetti family, which was a Bergamas family. Uh, but this is the only isolated portrait of a baby we have. But we have the babies in the last room in the painting, so-called the, the widower. We don't know why, if he was a widower, but he's a father alone with two children. And these are very beautiful as well. Yes, it's true. He was also a, a very good uh, painter of, uh, of babies, yes. And actually, I chose the baby because it was painted to be a postcard, is what I said. <laughs> Any more questions? I wanted to know what paintings 
he may have seen by other yeah. quality artists in the north in relatively small collections and towns that could have given him, as you say, that northern and realistic and textural yeah. quality in his work. Yeah, it's important to contextualize Moroni's. What we tried to do, uh, showing three paintings by Moretto and one painting by Lotto. But of course, in the small space of the Sackler, then uh, it was already too much. Uh, of course, he's also a little bit mysterious, so he's part of the debate. Did he go to Venice? There is no, no, no trace of this trip, but it was very close. I think it's possible he, that an artist wanted to go to see what, what was going on in Venice. But even if he didn't go, there was in Bergamo some examples of portraits by Titian, for example, uh, that are documented by the source. We, we don't know what, how did they look like, but we, know, we knew that they were, there were present portraits by Titian uh, and painting by Veronese. In Brescia, we had altarpieces by Titian. So I'm sure he had already, when he was young, opportunity to see uh, a lot of Venetian examples. In Trento, uh, even more. We knew he met Alessandro Vittoria, the greatest sculptor of his time, and we have a beautiful portrait by Moroni, uh, a portrait of Alessandro Vittoria, which is now in Vienna, a uh, great portrait we don't have in the exhibition. Um, so he met this artist, and there, it was a, in a certain way the door to the north. So uh, many people from northern Europe were was there, and uh, so I'm sure he, he had in front of his eyes example, for, for, for instance, of Anthony Smore, the greatest international portrait painters of Europe at the time, with Titian. So yes, this is still to be studied in a certain way, yes. But not, nothing is proven in the documents. Only what I told you, Veronese, Titian, yeah. And then some, sometimes, but yes, Moroni was also inspired by prints. For example, one of the paintings that we have in our show was inspired by a print by Dürer. Another one is not in the show by a print after Leon Bruno. And another one is a, that is not in the show, a painting of a Madonna, is a replica of Fabellini. So he's an artist, which, even if his provincial war had a certain artistic culture. Looking at the painting of the tailor, it seemed to me that the man's face had a, a definite greenish tinge to it. Is that an accident of the pigment over time, or do you think it would have been deliberate? I don't think he was sick, but surely... <laughs> But, but he's also, there is this, it's a, a little bit gloomy image in a certain way. Originally it was probably like that, also this atmosphere of a dark space. But I think a lot of the, this feeling is given by the conservation state of this painting, which is, is very good, but not perfect. This one is a perfect painting. This, this, really. These are really, you, can, you have to imagine a little bit the, the rest of the room a little bit in this way. The tailor is, is um, a little bit worn in some places, and as you rightly pointed out, the face is probably one of these. these. Thank you. Please join me in thanking Arturo Galancino for today's lecture.